Future Now, Future Next, in association with ESB. Be part of a brighter future with ESB. Welcome to RTE's Future Now, Future Next, in association with ESB. I'm Andy O'Donoghue. In this series, we explore how technology is changing how we live now and how it will revolutionise our future world. COVID-19 has changed our lives in significant ways, and it's unlikely that life will return to those pre-COVID-19 norms. This may be particularly true of healthcare, and healthcare providers have had to transform how they work to ensure patients can safely continue to get the care they need. Many began offering telehealth appointments to connect with patients in their homes. Policies were changed to protect those visiting and working in hospitals and clinics. And some support programmes even went virtual. But has the provision of healthcare changed forever? And what role will technologies like wearables, artificial intelligence and robotics play in the healthcare system of the future? And will big data and genome analysis radically change how we target and treat certain conditions. These are just some of the topics that I'll be discussing with my guests today. James Temperton, digital editor of Wired UK and recent author of The Future of Medicine. Bloheen Moriarty, consultant dermatologist and associate professor at UCD. Dr Andy Franklin Miller, a consultant sports and exercise medicine physician. And Sonia Neary, co-founder of digital healthcare startup Wellola. Welcome to Future Now, Future Next. James Temperton is the digital editor of Wired UK and the author of Future of Medicine. James, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. I have to ask you about your book because you start chapter two with a quote from Michael Snyder of Stanford where he says medicine is broken. How broken is it and can we fix it? We absolutely can fix it and we can fix it fairly quickly. So Michael Snyder's perspective is that when we go and see our GP, the clue is kind of in the name. They're a general practitioner. And even though you see them as an individual, the care that they're able to give you is quite general. It's not based on who you are and the specific makeup of your body. We're we're very, very good at treating disease. We're not especially good at preventing people from becoming ill in the first place. So All of your listeners will be quite familiar with the idea that you go to the doctor when there's something wrong with you and they maybe do some tests, ask some questions and maybe send you off to a clinic or a hospital for follow-up appointments. But all of that is reacting to something going wrong with your body. What Dr. Snyder proposes is that in the very near future, doctors will have huge amounts of information about each and every one of us and they'll be able to use that information to stop us from getting ill in the first place. Is that a reference or sort of embodying what the Human Genome Project is all about? Yeah, that's certainly the start of it. So here in the UK, we're very fortunate to have the NHS. And the NHS is one of the largest collectors of genetic data from patients in the world. And it's going to scale up its database of genetic um, information over the coming years into the tens and hundreds of thousands, potentially. And that that data is absolute gold dust. But what um, Dr. Snyder proposes is that we collect lots of other data as well. So people will be familiar with their microbiome. There's quite a bit of hype around that these days. And all the different systems and processes within our body that determine whether we're healthy or ill and why we get ill, we can collect data on those and use that data to make sure that we get the best possible care. So if you think about a visit to the doctor now, you might get a letter saying you're of a certain age and based on your family history, we'd like you to come in for screening for this condition or this disease. So that's using a certain amount of personalised information, but it's still based on population averages. We're still seeing people as part of a cohort of patients rather than individuals. And the reason that I might get ill would be very, very different from the reason that someone else who is the same age, BMI and ethnicity as me, just because I'm part of a group doesn't mean that I'm not an individual. Does this lead us down the road towards a more personal health care around personalised medicine then for, for us as individuals? That's absolutely right. So the the near future of medicine is all about making things more personalised. We've seen throughout the COVID-19 pandemic that everybody reacts to this disease differently. There are some people who are barely affected and there are some people who are incredibly badly affected. And there have been many millions of people who have lost 
their lives. Now, the reason that is, is because of our genetics. It's because of various processes within our body that dictate that that virus is going to hit us harder or softer than the person that's maybe standing next to us in the office where it's being spread or the family home where it's being spread. So it's it's a very tragic but a very good example of why we need to move more towards personalised medicine. And what we found throughout the pandemic is two people who seem identical when they walk into a hospital, one of those people is going to walk out of that hospital in a few days having recovered and the other person is likely going to lose their life. They're both infected by the same virus but the body reacted in a very different way. So we need to move towards a position where we have much greater volumes of data on individuals, but also a much better understanding of how diseases affect our bodies and how to better target those diseases and other health conditions to make sure that we're getting ahead of them and ideally stopping them before they even get started. In relation to collecting that data, how do we get those huge volumes of data? Do we all need to participate or where will it come from? It's going to be a real mix, right? So some people suggest that we'll become accustomed to wearing a variety of wearables. Now, at the moment, a lot of people wear devices like Apple Watches or fitness and health bands from other companies, and they collect genuinely useful data. That data isn't necessarily processed and analysed in a useful way because it's locked away in silos that are owned by private companies. Now, it could be the case that in the future, your healthcare provider might say, we'd like to get a little bit of information about you. We're going to send you in the post a couple of little gadgets and gizmos that are going to record certain things about your body. We're going to take that data and we're going to use it to put in place a healthcare plan for you going forward. And they might combine that with some blood samples and stool samples and urine samples, etc. So what the doctor at Stanford, Michael Snyder, did is he spent many years doing this to himself. So he collected thousands, millions of data points about his own body over a number of years to see if he could get to a position where he was able to predict when he would become ill. And he was. So he was able to spot that he was about to become diabetic and he sees in the health data that he collected about himself the moment at which he became diabetic. And as a result of that early intervention, he was able to make lifestyle changes and crucially, take the right medication to make sure that diabetes didn't become something that dictated how he lived his life. So that's really, really crucial. When he expanded his research out into a cohort of patients of around 100 people, they discovered all sorts of underlying health conditions and things that needed action. The only reason that they found them is because lots and lots of data was collected and that data was collected in lots of different ways. So it's simple sensors and wearables, but also going to see a doctor and them collecting lots and lots of samples from you and then using really, really smart data analysis to learn things from those samples so that they're able to make predictive decisions about how your health should best be managed. I read recently about a project um, with the idea of creating a bra for women that would continuously monitor breast tissue. And it does sound, given what you've said about wearables, that that sort of remarkable innovation um, will actually become embedded in our everyday lives. It might not become embedded in your everyday life, but certainly the, the cost of the technology that goes into products like that makes it affordable enough that it perhaps could be. I think what's more likely is... Your GP will, when you get to a certain age, send you certain devices and ask for certain tests to be able to build up a data set about who you are. So in terms of how commonplace will it be for people to be walking around all the time with gadgets and gizmos strapped to their bodies and maybe even um, technology that they swallow that's able to analyse their body from from the inside, that's a little bit sci-fi and unlikely. What's more likely, and already happening to an extent, is that our genome will be sequenced before birth or at birth, that there'll be really, really detailed sampling and data analysis done on all of us throughout our lives that will give a really rich, detailed picture of what makes us healthy, why we get ill, so that the healthcare plan that I'm given is really, really different to the healthcare plan that you're given or anyone else is given. When you mentioned people being admitted to hospital and we spoke about people visiting their doctor, over the next 10, 20 years, and we've seen you know, the emergence of companies like Teladoc, for instance, particularly over the last uh, 12 months, 
Will we need to go to the doctor less? Will we spend less time in their office? And how is that likely to pan out eventually for us? We already spend very little time in our doctor's office. I think the average um, GP appointment time in the UK is something like 11 minutes, and there's not really enough time in that slot to do much more than ask a few very, very basic questions. I think concerns that people raise about the future of an awful lot of industries is that that human-to-human interaction will be replaced somehow by a machine. But all the people I spoke to for the book were very much of the mind that these artificial intelligence systems and these huge data sets that are going to become integral to medicine will augment human intelligence. And they'll allow doctors to, in the short time that they do have with you, make better decisions. So it might be, as we've seen throughout the pandemic, that that initial consultation is done over a video call. You don't need to go in. They can post out the kits for you to do tests and take samples at home and you can post them back. And you don't need to be in a specific place at a specific time. We've become accustomed, I think, not just during the pandemic, but in how we live our lives, of the services that we use being very convenient for us. So let's take Netflix as an example. It might sound like it's got nothing to do with healthcare, but Netflix makes it convenient for you to watch what you want to watch, when you want to watch it, where you want to watch it. So you can watch a blockbuster film on your phone on the bus, whereas before you would have had to go to a cinema at a specific time, right? So the future of healthcare, so much as the interaction between a doctor and a patient, it's much more likely to be like Netflix than it is like going to the cinema. So you'll have an online appointment, the stuff that you need will come to your own home. And for some people who aren't living close to um, centres of clinical excellence, that will mean that they can get just the same quality of care that someone who does live close to that centre of clinical excellence. And that's really, really important for people who are old, people who have mobility problems, or people that live in rural areas that previously haven't had access to as high quality healthcare. One of the topics you discuss in the book is the end of ageing. And in... Silicon Valley, for instance, we know there are lots of companies that have raised money to specifically look at the challenge or, you know, the utopia of the end of aging. Do you think technology and science now is evolving at a pace where that could become a realistic future? I think some people in Silicon Valley might like to think that. So there are fairly senior people within Google who believe that We're at a point now where human beings can live beyond the age of 500. There are others that believe that there are human beings alive now that will live beyond the age of 1,000. Now, let's, let's be straight here. That's nonsense. What's true is that we can definitely ensure that people live slightly longer and definitely healthier lives. So there's been a lot of research done to understand the biomarkers of aging. So there are some people who live very, very, very long, healthy lives, and then pretty much just drop dead in their sleep. We now understand why that's the case, because we've been able to identify in large cohorts of patients the specific biomarkers that, it seems, suggest that you're not blighted by disease in the same way that many of us are. You know, it's, it's quite commonplace for people to get to 60, 70, 80 years of age and to have totted up a number of quite serious health conditions and eventually their bodies just get tired and they sadly die. Now, by identifying the biomarkers of longevity, it should be possible for us to develop drugs that effectively target aging and we can treat aging as a disease. Aging is the number one cause of death. It might sound somewhat stupid to say it, but you're far more likely to develop cancer if you're older. You're far more likely to develop diabetes if you're older. It is the number one driver of disease and death. So if we can start treating aging as a disease, and we're pretty close to being able to do that, then that will unlock huge, huge potential for people to live not necessarily longer lives, but much healthier lives. In The Future of Medicine, you also discuss the what you call the data avalanche and its impact on the pharmaceutical industry. Now, we obviously have experience over the last 12 months, but are we likely to see, um, in all of the topics, I suppose, that you've uh, discussed in the book, it seems like everything is just speeding up because of this access to data and its impact will be fierce on, uh, in a good way on the industry. So if we're talking about a future where all this data is going to enable us to develop much more personalised precision medicines, then it needs to be economically viable and possible in terms of regulation for those treatments to be developed. So in the book, I tell the story of 
a girl from um, the outskirts of Boulder, Colorado, called Mila. And um, Mila was born with a fatal genetic condition called Batten disease. Um, and, and sadly, she died just a few short weeks ago at the age of 10. But in Mila's lifetime, what her mother and a brilliant doctor based in Boston called Tim Yu were able to do is develop the first ever drug developed for just one patient. That drug's called Mielicin. And what Mielicin did was it targeted the genetic mutation that Mila carried and it effectively put a plaster over it. So what the doctors found was that Mila's genetic mutation was effectively like a random lump of nonsense landing in the middle of the alphabet. So the alphabet goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. In Mila's case, her genetic code went A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, 4, D, E, F, G, right? There was a bit in the way, but you could still read the genetic code correctly. So they were able to develop this drug, Mielicin. It's called an antisense oligonucleotide. And what it does is it puts a plaster over that wrong bit of code and it enables the body to correctly read the instructions. Now, in the case of Mila, unfortunately, the diagnosis was made too late and the development of the drug took less than a year. But even that time really took a lot out of Mila as a human being. This is a very, very violent disease. Um, but when the drug was administered, Mila's quality of life improved. She was able to walk again with assistance. She was able to swallow food, whereas previously she'd been fed using a G-tube. So the drug did make a difference, and it was proof for the first time that we can develop drugs for individual patients. And if that drug had have been administered earlier, then chances are Mila might still be alive today. And the researchers are really, really hopeful that they can find, and they already have found, other patients with rare neurodegenerative and fatal conditions that they can target with this kind of genetic therapy. It's a remarkable realisation of what is possible scientifically, but in order for it to scale up and to be viable for the, the hundreds of thousands of children that are born every year with these sorts of conditions, then it needs to be more economically viable and regulators meet, need to move to a position where it isn't so fantastically difficult to get these things approved and administered. James Temperton is digital editor of Wired UK and author of The Future of Medicine, which is a fascinating read. James, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Future Now, Future Next, and in this episode, we're discussing the future of healthcare. James Temperton outlined some of the developments that are likely to transform future healthcare, but how are those developments evolving or playing out right now in hospitals and clinics? Well, I caught up with Blohin Moriarty, consultant dermatologist and associate professor at UCD, and I started by asking Blohin about the impact that remote or virtual medicine has had on her specialised field, dermatology. Dermatology is sort of the poster child for remote medicine because one of the advantages of dermatology or skin medicine is that of course we can all see our skin in contrast to other organs where we may not know there's something wrong until much later in the process. And so from inception of telemedicine, teledermatology has, has been right there. So there have been a number of apps developed for, um, you know, that you can commercially buy in the app store where you can photograph moles and photograph lesions. And the rudimentary, uh, you know, the initial the initial apps developed were, were much less advanced than what can be done now. So yes, certainly the pandemic has forced all of us to think about how we interact with patients, how we interact with each other, and how we can make that more efficient using the technology available to us and developing technology as, as we go along. So when you talk about the apps that um, say patients uh, would use, um, is it, it, is it literally about photographing skin and sending it to your doctor? Is it as straightforward as that? Well, yes and no. Um, so the, of course, and you'll know in media so well, the image that you receive uh, hugely influences the information that you can feed back. So a blurry out focus photograph isn't something that can be worked with. Or the bigger issue that we run into is that, is that so when we see a patient, if you were to come into my clinic, I would examine all of your skin, not just the one. And so um, it's it's knowing which which is the area that needs to be looked at. And I suppose that's what that's the downside of telemedicine because, um, you know, we can't send 
the whole patient electronically. <clears throat> but that said, you know, we're all getting much, much better at using cameras. The education around how to use our cameras is improved. So there are sort of three tiers. So there's the tier where the patient takes the photographs and sends them in, um, which of course, and then there's all of the tech that goes behind and the media that goes behind it, of GDPR and, and, and ensuring it's secure and all of those issues that you would imagine around dermatology. There's, um, there is the, the, the tier where you go to your doctor or you go to um, their commercial companies. There's a very successful Irish commercial company um, where you can attend and they will take the photograph for you, knowing which lesion to choose and probably being slightly more experienced at, at um, undertaking skin imaging. And then there's another tier, which is you come to us or, or, or your local hospital and you know you may have a clinical photographer take an image or you may have a clinician take an image and that may be used then as part of the hospital or the um the multidisciplinary team approach to managing your care where rather than you coming repeatedly to the hospital mm. if we have the image and we have the pathology we have the scans that that can be used in a multidisciplinary team way and fed fed back or, or interact with you in, in a remote capacity so there's lots of different tiers to um these images where the, um, you have you still have a clinician involved in the diagnostics. Imaging um, is an interesting application of technology, but dermatology is a speciality, I imagine, where um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, are there applications emerging for those sort of technologies? Yes, so there have been a number of different technologies emerging for probably just over a decade now. And I suppose it is becoming accepted that this will become the future. Um, until recently, there um, hadn't been programs that could diagnose as well as a dermatologist, but that is changing and we will be superseded. <laughs> um, so, uh, there, there's, so the deep learning um, uh, that, that's in, the deep learning that's involved in training these programs is really fascinating. And so there's a, there's a, a British company, for example, where they have trained their, um, their program from just over 7,000 patient images and it learns as it goes, and diagnostically, it's more than ninety, more than ninety-five percent sensitive, which is really as good as it gets. Of course, there are issues with training AI, and quite aside from picking the right lesion, which is is the first issue. Um, because the machine learns as it goes, if, for example, I have a habit of putting a blue dot next to the mole that I'm worried about, so that when the patient goes to surgery, take off the right one, the machine, if it sees right, well, blue blue dot means alarming mole it will learn that into its circuits. So there are some issues around how the machines learn, but actually these are being ironed out each new generation of technology. Blowing the volume of data to make AI useful or even more useful, is that volume, well, phenomenal? Phenomenal is the word I would and um, so these most successful programs will have looked at more, the, the, or the most successful published will have looked at about more than 7,000 images in terms of learning. So finding 7,000 patient, individual patient images um, and having the right balance of malignant, of pre-malignant, of benign, um, of age groups, because of course moles in children will look very different to moles in adults. Um, so the, 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 the volume of um, patient uh, data needed to teach these machines, particularly when they continue to learn, is really extraordinary. Given the amount of data then to make things, I suppose, useful, Blohin, how do we collect more data? I mean, do you ask all of your patients to, uh, to be a part of a program like this? Is it the Human Genome Project? How do we collect more data that will ultimately um, lead us to these better outcomes with AI? Well, this, the specific way to get better scientific data is, to, of course, to recruit patients to more, more clinical trials. And so um, patient data will have been submitted to these programs in, picked from trials and picked from from databases of specific lesions and um, overall i guess the way to get to improve our technology and um some of the technology we're involved in uh, in in vincent's is through well-run you know ethically approved clinical trials that we can then offer to our patients and what about technology generally then and, and i suppose i should say wearable technology over the last couple of years i've come across you know the uv tracker that you uh, as a patch you put on your skin um, i've come across an irish company recently who um, use wearable technology in their wounds uh, to ensure that pressure is applied 
within say dermatology i suppose particularly do you think wearable is there a real future for wearables here absolutely so and and to bring wearables right back to the very basics in terms of things like sun protection and sun protective clothing the technology that has how that technology has advanced in recent years has really been phenomenal so going from the days where we all put on factor 2 oil um, and the other option was sort of as with those those very thick zinc sticks the nanotechnology now involved the screen applications that we can have chemical and mineral sunscreens that are in nanoparticles so that they're transparent and they're wearable and they're uh, they're pleasing we can put them on every morning <clears throat> and protect ourselves and not smell or feel and um, you know or or be invisible through a, a zinc or titanium stick and um, you know has really changed people's buy-in to preventing skin cancer and then of course um you know health uh, ireland the sunsmart campaign is, is is relatively new in ireland but this began in Australia, where skin cancer rates have been traditionally really very high. And the, watching how marketing has changed around sunscreen and their slip slaps slop campaign, um, and wh where people brought in not just sun protection factor, um, but wearable clothing, with sun which is sun protective, and seeing how their skin cancer rates has declined with the use of this very sort of um, you know, it's not something you even think of as technology, really, sunscreen and clothing, but um, that's made a huge difference. UV meters um, are fantastic because, of course, in Ireland, um, often, you know, if, if we go somewhere sunny, we know we're going to go out in the sun, we know we're going to protect ourselves. But what happens to us in Ireland is we, get, we all get caught out. Nobody expected it to be sunny yesterday because it was predicted to rain and then we get caught out. And so having a UV meter and knowing that the UV is, you know, three or four or five and above and that we really need to protect ourselves is is, is a huge advance and will make a big difference um, going forward to primary prevention. It's interesting because I, mean, I suppose what you're talking about there is how we react to weather. But yes. um, from, are we, are we predisposed to be um, at risk based on genetics? And the reason I ask is, um, if we were to analyze everybody's uh, genes, could we be more aware as individuals, particularly that we should take care? Absolutely. So the Human Genome Project, we know, took a huge amount of money and more than a decade to sequence the first genome. And that went on to the 1000 Genomes Project. And now we realize that individually, we don't need to sequence our whole genome, that we can sequence small parts of it called exomes, the code for most of our genes. And this has gone from being a very expensive and labor intensive and time intensive pro um, process to costing about 400 pounds and being readily available. The 1000 Genome Project tracks the geography of genes. And in Ireland, we have a very, very high skin cancer rate compared to international. So we have about 13,000 cancers a year here in Ireland. So not only is that 13,000 individuals affected by skin cancer, but it's the resources to manage 13,000 cancers that face it, most of which are avoidable. And so I, I've had patients walk into my clinic and say, I carry this specific gene. I haven't noticed anything on my skin, but I know I'm at risk. Can you have a look at my skin? And this is definitely the way of the future. We know that, for example, there's a melanocortin receptor gene, which is the gene that codes for the color of your hair and the color of your skin. Um, and certain um, genes are like keys, I guess. So if you have one key, if you have one key that codes for red hair and fairer skin, that's, a, I mean, a mutation or it's a different key in this melanocortin receptor and that is melanocortin receptor and that increases your risk exponentially of having a, a skin cancer, but it's not the only one. Um, so there are specific um, familial genes that are more common here or, or more common in Scotland that we can test for and we can know right we predict that your skin cancer risk is higher we can give you technology to prevent it we can use various different technologies diagnostically and then of course we move on to all the changes that um and the advances in the technology of treating skin cancer which is also very very um you know which has been really changing at a pace that is um you know not not hasn't happened before in medical history really blowing over the last 12 months i suppose and and in, in, in that context, so much has changed, though. And um, do you think, I suppose, when we when we talk about um, subjects like that, um, do you, I mean, things will never be the same. I think we could agree on that. But do you think that um, medicine 
has been impacted or has been given such impetus over the last 12 months that, um, I mean, it really has been a remarkable year. Undoubtedly, and I, I, I totally agree that I, I don't see how we ever go back to how things were. And I think that the, the, the great, um, you know, the great example has been the speed at which vaccines have developed. But you've got to remember that in every little um, department and every little specialty and every different hospital and every different university around the world, people have been working to make their own processes more efficient. And so, um, you know, we, for example, on a very rudimentary level where we would all have come into a room to have multidisciplinary team meetings, we now do that partly virtually, where we might have triaged all patients by hauling them into our clinic. Now there's a certain degree of, you know, photographic triage, you know, teledermatology. Um, there are, there, there, there's a great um, uh, GP peer-to-peer <laughs> um, app that's been developed so that um, because the access to hospital care has been reduced, GPs will give peer-to-peer um, peer-to-peer advice to each other so it's totally changed um, you know we we try and make the patient pathway more efficient and I think this has been although it's been a dreadful year there has been an opportunity to put into practice things that might have taken us 10 or 12 years to, to do under normal under normal rules uh, ultimately meaning that we've met p- perhaps the silver lining that medicine has changed for the better certainly um, and I think we have to acknowledge the fact that waiting lists have, have have increased enormously and that there are enough there are tremendously more patients waiting to be seen than there were this time and of course there will be delayed diagnoses and there will be people who will unfortunately have worse outcomes than had they been seen at the, at the time that they would have been so I think we have to acknowledge that but you're right there there is there is this small silver lining that hopefully the processes that we've developed to look after the patients that we have been able to see in hospitals will be able to be expanded and built upon and brought into um, a system in a way that will allow this to um, really develop and flourish in a speed that's more akin to technological the technological world and the business world than healthcare, which were were traditionally um, quite late adopters. So as you mentioned, peer-to-peer review, is that apps like Dermabuddy blowing? Yes, so Dermabuddy is a really successful story um, developed by a GP um, called Paul Ryan in Cork. Dermabuddy um, is essentially um, a a, a secure um, app used by uh, GPs with some dermatologists and and other doctors trainee, all very secure, um, where if a GP is wondering about a diagnosis or a management conundrum, they can upload securely a photograph with some details and any peer, so other GP or dermatologist, can offer advice um, based on the images and the history they're given, and then that GP can go back to their patient. And often, um, it can be, you know, little things that are easily sorted out. You've seen it before, or it might be right. This needs to be urgently escalated to a hospital, or it might be this is what we do um, here locally in the community first, and it may or may not need to go on so it's it's really very successful um, and it, the, the benefit to patients is that of course they don't need to lo- leave the comfort of their own home to get not only multiple GP opinions but also off the dermatology opinion uh, to go with it and there's been a number of um, cases so for example someone might have presented with a mole that the GP wasn't sure about and someone said oh gosh you've got to get that straight to an NCCP pigmented lesion clinic that needs to come off urgently. Um, or, um, you know, it might be something more straightforward. This patient has a rash and says, oh, I've seen this before. This is what you do with it. So it's really successful. And it's been a real, um, there's a real sense of camaraderie. Uh, and it's been a real benefit to patients, particularly at this time when it's difficult to access your GP, it's difficult to access hospitals. And as we know, waiting lists are climbing all the time in a way that is devastating both to healthcare professionals, but most importantly to patients. Lohin Moriarty, Consultant Dermatologist and Associate Professor at UCD. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Future Now, Future Next in association with ESB. ESB, creating a brighter future for all.
Now, we've had the clinician's perspective there from Blohin Moriarty and earlier James Temperton's insights on the potential for personalised and precision medicine. However, medicine is also evolving rapidly in regards to sport and particularly high performance sports. Dr. Andy Franklin Miller is a consultant sports and exercise medicine physician at Sports Surgery Clinic. He has worked as a team doctor to British Olympic Rowing, England Rugby, Melbourne Storm Rugby League, as well as the New Zealand Black Ferns. And that's alongside his work for UK Athletics, the Australian Open Tennis and World Swimming Championships. Andy, thank you for joining us today. Andrew, absolute pleasure to join you. It appears then we need lots of data to make swifter progress, Andy. So is it a matter of collecting more to make targeted and even personalised medicine or interventions possible? Look, I think one of the big things here is going to be continuous monitoring. We're already seeing um, Gatorade, let's say, with a, a stick-on patch that will continue to monitor sodium levels and your hydration status. In diabetic patients currently you can use continuous glucose monitoring so a small patch that you stick on the back of your arm it measures your blood glucose continuously it links to your phone so you can swipe the phone after you've had a meal and understand how you can fine-tune not only your medication but actually probably more importantly your diet and your nutrition so I think one of the big areas is, is going to be patient-managed continuous monitoring. Yes, in conjunction with your physician, and certainly Apple are making some inroads in terms of ECG monitoring on, in the Apple Watch, but I think it's going to be very much more specific. We can always take small um, blood samples at present. And certainly, of course, Theranos, the, 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 the potentially vaunted saviour of uh, micro blood tests, um, you know, the people are really looking for this all the time. And, and I think the use of genomic medicine, so trying to understand at a, a more cellular level, really trying to push the boundaries of taking that genomic medicine. But I'd go back to the fact that actually we already have a lot of data we just don't use. You know, in the UK, the, um, the Human Genomic Pro- Programme, um, UK Biobank, is taking samples from hundreds of thousands of patients, trying to look at a predictive and preventative but it's more predictive. We've already got a lot of data that we know that an elevated C-reactive protein increases the risk of cardiac disease. We know that high circulating glucose aggravates joint membranes or synovial membranes can exacerbate osteoarthritis. So we've got a lot of data that actually if we use continuous glucose monitoring, let's say, we can start to improve the outlook for the patient with an osteoarthritic knee. So although we look at that from an elite athlete point of view, we want to optimize their C-reactive protein as much as we can then we wind the clock back and pass that on to not so much the everyday patient, but much more common patients with knee osteoarthritis. And we know that glucose can aggravate the the cellular membrane, the, the membrane around the joint, which can cause pain. So rather than relying on opiate medication or anti-inflammatory medication, well, let's control one of the major triggers and then allow the patient to get out and do more exercise, gain strength. And we can target that strength using work like 3D biomechanics, which will become more and more available in the, in the home. Companies like Xsense, inertial sensors, small inertial sensors, we can start to take the detail of the lab. Our laboratory uses the same um, technology that Pixar would use to animate um, small facial expressions in the movies, but eventually we'll be able to translate that using small sensors that will either stick on the, in the clothes or be part of a weave that can allow us to deliver that both at the home, but also in the club, be that the, the, the junior GAA um, player Um, or the recreational golfer or the recreational tennis player, we can look at those movements, we can apply those same feature selections to give targeted intervention to improve performance, to improve the power of that swing or or the power of the serve, but also to reduce the risk of that reaching tissue capacity and causing tendon muscle breakdown. If I could ask you just to look into the future a little bit, do you think that teams, and when I say teams, I mean, you know, teams who are looking for success, um, be that professional um, football teams or international rugby teams, will an investment in this sort of technology and sports medicine research, will it ultimately get them to the top of the pile? Absolutely. The, there was an interesting paper that looked at soccer players in Qatar. Um, the Qatari league, um, very closed league, and so there's a lot of research goes on there by Aspatar, a sports medicine hospital based in Qatar. Um, and um, there was a lovely paper that looked at what constituted success. And the interesting fact was 
the club that won more consistently were the one with the players with the availability. So if we can reduce downtime for the superstar players of a club, that immediately translates to success. At the moment, many clubs, even at a Premier League level, treat their athletes um, almost as, as a commodity, um, but actually with not a huge amount of fine-tuning. We still rely on this medieval concept of looking and moving a joint. We might video a joint, but the level of detail of movement really isn't part and parcel of everyday tracking. We don't know how someone can change direction at a high speed and how they as an individual, we haven't measured it in those athletes, um, in order to know what happens when they're injured to restore them back to how they were at the beginning. And that difference is really important. Um, you know, like we, we look at returning a player to sport faster and that return to performance, but very often we don't have an accurate picture of what that performance reflects to know how we get back to. So you often see in rehabilitation, a patient will go back for a couple of games and then be out again, then back and then out again and back. And that becomes that almost oscillating lack of predictability for a coach trying to manage the team around that. That's a disastrous scenario to be in, knowing the availability. So, so player availability um, can be improved using this sort of continuous data analysis. The more data we can have on these individuals, um, the better. It, it's a difficult concept though. This 24-hour athlete um, is very different in the US where a lot of those players aren't paid their full salary if they're not available for selection. And so there, there's a very bigger focus on actually the availability because actually availability means salary. Um, you know, in Premier League clubs, broadly, those players are paid whether they're available or not because injury is part and parcel of that club and that discussion. So it's interesting, you start to talk about that 24-hour athlete or is that the athlete who feels that he's paid for his performance on the field and actually outside of that, is that anybody's business but their own? So there's an element of in terms of invasiveness from a sort of GDPR point of view, thinking about how much information do we have at 3 a.m. on athlete B compared to 3 a.m. on athlete C? And how are we allowed to intervene in that patient if someone's not having sufficient sleep, hydration, um, you know, playing PlayStation at three in the morning the night before the match? Are we entitled um, to jump in there and start to adapt? Uh, five years from now, Andy, what do you think you'll be working on on a daily basis or perhaps with artificial intelligence, wearables? What do you think is going to play the biggest part um, in your job over the next five or 10 years? I think creating very large data sets on patients like you and I. Um, the, the elite data will filter in at the very top. So we'll start to have individual responses to interventions. Um, if, if we looked at strength as just a simple measure at the moment, if we start with strength, then we look at strength through a range of motion of a joint. We look through straight strength through different joints um, and how that might be relevant, like how your ankle strength relates to your back pain. Um, and we want to look at that in an elite athlete all the way down to a pediatric seven-year-old. Um, but we want to add that in with increasing genomic medicine in terms of those blood tests and looking at your gene profile, but also the way that your muscle um, genomics are, are because then we find that there may be patients who are, um, are born with a type of collagen that makes them very predisposed to recurrent ligament injuries. But we want to tie that into how we can successfully intervene. If patient A wins in the rehab uh, world, gets back to sport within three or four weeks, we want to take that knowledge and apply it to everyone across a much broader sense. So I think sensors, inertial sensors, continuous blood monitoring in various forces and the use of that very large data set to machine learn, feature select, and drive individualization is the way of the future. You're listening to RTE's Future Now, Future Next. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by Sonia Neary from Irish startup company Wellola, whose founders believe only the sickest of the sick should be hospitalised, and the future of healthcare is preventative, community-based, and supported by digital tools. Sonia, thanks so much for being with us today. An absolute pleasure, Andy. Thank you for having me. Sonia, over the last 12 months, we've seen a phenomenal adoption of remote healthcare. Is this likely to be the norm from now on? I think it's an interesting question. Um, certainly, there's been a huge adoption of uh, technological approaches to healthcare that, you know, be that remote monitoring, video consultations with your GP, um, 
wearables, devices, consumer wearables, all that lovely stuff. There has definitely been um, a drive from the government, an adoption from healthcare providers, an adoption from patients themselves to this new method of healthcare delivery. Um, it's certainly new in the Irish context. Mm. It's relatively well established in the likes of the US, you know, that kind of John Hopkins, what they call hospital at home care model has been around for, you know, 15, 20 years in the US. Um, but sort of mass adoption on a global scale has, you know, arguably happened at a, an outrageous pace in the last sort of 18 months. So in the real world environment, I would call my GP, I'd make an appointment, I'd go and see him, he'd shine a light in my ear and he might give me a prescription. And then I might have a follow up visit a month later to make sure everything was OK. That's the real world. Tell me about the digital version of that. Yeah, so essentially in, we work in that space where we take that entire pathway that you just described fully online. So you digitized every element of that almost. Um, so the patient would go to the hospitals or the GP's website. They'd make a booking online. They might be booking an in-person session or a video session, depending on what's deemed appropriate. Uh, they attend the session, be it via video. So they might get a, a link to join a video call, you know, on their phone via text or email. They have their session. Um, the, the GP or the healthcare provider can send them resources through our platform or, or others like it. Um, and then that might include a prescription, for example. A big kind of uh, benefit for the Irish healthcare system over the course of COVID was that uh, prescriptions did go online. So, for example, GP, GPs can uh, pass prescription referrals to pharmacies through HealthLink now, which wasn't there before. A big gain in the primary care space for us. And so all of that is digitized, including the kind of payment and receipting. We, you know, we're connected with Stripe, another fantastic company based in Dublin. Um, so that's the benefit of the, the digitization mm. of the process. Um, we're not trying to replace in-person care, but it complements in-person care where appropriate. And in using wearable technology like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, and there's lots of data being collected. And now we have new devices remote insulin monitoring and other things like that. How does the doctor see that data? Where does it end up and how is it useful for the process? Yes, yeah, so typically the way our system works is the patient inputs the data and it feeds into what they call the electronic healthcare record that the healthcare provider has access to. So where the, the healthcare gains benefits is the healthcare provider, rather than seeing you, you know, once every six months when you're unwell, they might be getting data feeds for the entire time you're alive, obviously, <laughs> if you wish them to. And, and they might be alerted when things are happening that they can engage with preventatively. So before you have that heart attack, they can say, I'm seeing some really like bright red flashing alerts on my system here that are telling me there's something wrong. Can you come in to see me or can you take something preventatively? And they can engage with you in advance. Um, so, so that is quite possible now, you know, those tools are in place with Willola and with other providers, with some of the partners we work with and the devices they have. You can have pulse oximetry, heart rate, blood pressure, all of that lovely stuff monitored, fed into your app. You can see it, your healthcare provider can see it. I think the challenge is that there's a limited resource in terms of the people on the receiving end at that clinical interface to deliver care. So there's probably a space for how much of this can be triaged by potentially in time, you know, the, the AI. So, so can someone warn you and can you engage with that? And if that doesn't work, then you engage with your clinical provider. Ideally prevents the development of, of poor health. It maintains wellness. It stops you from needing to go into a hospital or to see your GP and, and only to do those things absolutely when required. But once we get that right, the, the data ideally prevents the development of, of poor health. It maintains wellness. It stops you from needing to go into a hospital or to see your GP and, and only to do those things absolutely when required. And Sonia, what have you seen in relation to, say, mental health or psychologists using your platform? Have they seen a similar increase in the amount of patients they're seeing online? A hundred percent. We've worked on a project in Ireland with the Health Innovation Hub um, at St. James's Hospital and the Irish Association of Counselors and Psychotherapists. Equally, we've launched a platform in the UK for the British Association of Counselors and Psychotherapists, and they've got about 50,000 members or thereabouts. 
Um, all of them, you know, on a recent survey when asked, you know, will you continue to use this tool or telecare as a method of care delivery after COVID passes have all said yes, like 100%. Okay. <laughs> so, the, so that's not in dispute. Um, I think, unfortunately, the fallout of this horrendous pandemic ha has been the impact that it's had on our mental health, on anxiety and depression and loneliness and, and, and people need additional mental health care supports. So the demand has gone up. Uh, the number of uh, providers is still more or less you know, the same. Mm. Perhaps a few have graduated in the last 18 months to mm. add to that pool of providers. Um, but, but yes, telecare absolutely is 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 here to stay as far as I can see from the mental health care professionals that we service. Sonia, if I can go back to your point about data and the wearable technology revolution, my Apple Watch or my Fitbit gives me and somebody else potentially really good information, not just about my sleep and my activity, but where I've been and perhaps even how long I've been sitting on the couch. How do we protect that data so that, you know, maybe one day insurance companies tell me, well, your insurance will really need to get more expensive because you're not moving enough? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's what's proving most challenging for consumers. And, and, and there is the adoption of digital, uh, you know, tools in other aspects of our life, you know, online grocery shopping and online banking, etc. But, but we're nervous about, you know, entering our healthcare data. And because of that, you know, it isn't always clear who's got visibility of this um, and what are they going to do with my data? And they're really sort of valid questions to be asking. Um, and so I, I would recommend that consumers would look really closely at any of the TNCs that they're agreeing to when they subscribe to using any platform. You, you want to make sure that you are the controller of your data or your healthcare provider is the controller and no one else should have access to your data. That's my, that's the way we work here. So our, everything that, that's in the cloud that is Willola is encrypted. None of our team have access to it, nor should they. They We don't have the right to, to have that in that way. Unless it's for, for example, for research purposes where you explicitly call like participants of the study, for example, are you okay with us taking your data fully anonymizing it, centralizing it, and then using it for analytics. And there should be no other way, in my mind, that a healthcare company or a software company should be you know, using data. It's not theirs to use. Sonia Neary, co-founder and CEO of Willola. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. In a year when the importance of healthcare and the value of science have perhaps never been so apparent, We've heard from four guests in this episode whose insights and views are not just interesting, but also portray a future where medicine and healthcare evolve to become more focused and effective for those who need it. Thank you for joining us on Future Now, Future Next. Join us next time for Future Now, Future Next in association with ESB. ESB, leading the way to a brighter future for all.